0: Good afternoon to everybody who is on this call. Welcome to a table talk. This is a podcast of the beloved community, and it's beautiful to be with everybody. Today is Wednesday, September 20th, 2023. Um, My name is Erwin Lopez. I am the co chair of the beloved community, and we're so grateful you're here with us because it means that Hispanic, Latino, Latinx ministries matter to you. And so we are really hoping that today's podcast, today's Zoom call, will spark some conversation and will help you better engage with Latinx populations in your community. We're gonna ask you to go ahead and put your questions in the chat as you feel led and please mute yourself if you're not speaking and feel free not to have your video on. It's it's fine not to have your video on and um, we're gonna go ahead and start. Today's topic is Latinx ministries in the age of disaffiliations. And one of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation was because as churches begin to disaffiliate, as we become more inclusive and anti-racist, I really wanted to have a conversation based on the idea of what now, what does ministry look look like now? And how can we have an inclusive and anti-racist ministry in a Latinx population, especially as they've been influenced by more Catholic, evangelical, conservative movements? And so just thinking about all those questions together. And so we have some very... Um, perfect speakers on this topic. We have the Reverend Dr. Cynthia Weems. She's the assistant to the bishop here for the Florida Conference, and she was a superintendent down in Miami, down in the Southeastern District, and so she has a lot of experience. We have Reverend Edwin Codo. He's an elder here in the United Methodist Church. He's from Puerto Rico, and he's the president of the Southeastern Jurisdictional Hispanic Latin Caucus, and he's also a senior pastor of a local church here in Orlando. Uh, we have Reverend Esther Rodriguez. She's a director of equity and community, ju- community justice for a local nonprofit in the Central Florida area called Hope Partnership. And she's also an elder in our conference. And we have Pastor Jose Nieves, who's a full elder in the conference, very active in his community. He got volunteer of the year by the Osceola School District. And he's the senior pastor of Kissimmee UMC, a bilingual congregation. And so we're gonna go start with um, Reverend Dr. Cynthia Weems, Cynthia, um, thank you for being here today and give us a little update on what's happening from your perspective and and what Latinx ministries it looks like in the age of disaffiliations.
1: Well, thank you so much, Erwin, and for everyone for being here today. What a great panel we have and um, dear colleagues and friends. And it's um, just a a wonderful opportunity for us to talk about this really important part of our life together and dream a bit about what might be next for us. Initially. And thinking about kind of the first question around the impact of disaffiliations in my local setting, as it relates to our ministries with Latino and Latina peoples um, and churches, uh, the the truth is I've presided over seven disaffiliation votes in Spanish. I've learned words I never knew I'd need uh, right in order to lead these information sessions and these disaffiliation votes, and it's been it's been difficult. Um, these are congregations in Miami primarily that I'm talking about at this moment that I've worked with you know, for many years. When I was the pastor at First Church in downtown Miami, uh, we were in the same cluster with a large portion of our Latino churches. And so I've known some of the pastors and laity in those churches for many years. So I would say that it's been hard for me personally. I've heard the stories of what it took for those churches to transition from being English speaking churches years ago to a spanish-speaking church and and how hard that was Um, and the people who put in um, lots of time and energy and anguish frankly into into what it took for that to happen and so then to be to be really saying farewell to those churches at this time is hard um so i believe we've lost some really important aspects of our Mm -hmm. history together hey i gotta go because i'm supposed to be on a zoom in a place like miami um that can that can lead a Avoid a leave a void for us as a conference. At the same time, leading the information sessions that are required uh, before a vote with congregations, um, and then leading the votes as well in those churches, did give me a window into some of the theology that's being taught uh, in them. And and just to be honest, it's it's not Wesleyan, right? In many instances. And so I think part of what we're coming to terms with, not just in our in our Latino ministries, but certainly throughout the conference and our denomination with with all churches that are are disaffiliating, not that it is the case with all of the churches, but this experience of having churches choose to leave, I do believe one reason is because of um, a real distance uh, in in the theology. Um, And I think for us, it gives us an opportunity then to really reroute ourselves in our Wesleyan uh, theology. Um, some of what's led to the disaffiliation, I'm convinced is a distance between churches with a, with a cross and a flame, um, out in front of their building, but a theology that really isn't represented by that symbol. Um, this happens in churches kind of in lots of places throughout the conference, not just in our Latino churches, but this is something I really have noted and I think is important. In terms of numbers, if it's helpful uh, for us to know, we've had four, uh, Latino churches disaffiliate thus far, and we'll have another five that will disaffiliate this fall. So nine churches may not sound like a lot, but I think we would all agree that it is. Remaining in our conference are about five churches and seven missions that are primarily Spanish-speaking, and as my brother here, uh, Jose, and I have been in conversation about You know, there are also other ministries that aren't official ministries of the conference. They may not have the title church or mission, but they are ministries that happen within a church. So perhaps a group of people who meet in a church fellowship hall uh, and they meet in Spanish, they are not their own entity. They are a part of a larger church. But if that church is disaffiliated, then that that ministry is also not a part of our conference life anymore. And so it's less easy to to have a number for those, but we know that those that's a real um, th- that's a reality as well in terms of those who have left. Um, there are also a host of churches in terms of remaining in the conference. There are a host of churches that consider themselves multicultural, where English is the primary language, but they are very much influenced by many cultures. And people on this call today represent some of those those churches. So what is our work ahead? I've, I've begun to think about as as all of us here on this call. You know, I do think our work is to build, rebuild the church for the next generation. And I think thinking through what, what the generations of immigrant populations in our state looks like is really important. There isn't just a one size fits all model um, for the diff- the many different um, immigrant communities in our, our wonderful state. You know, our problem isn't people. Florida's full of people, as we know, and Florida's full of diverse people. And I don't think our problem is message. I believe we as Wesleyan Christians have a life-giving and hopeful message for our diverse populations in the state of Florida. What we struggle with is a, a ministry model that really meets people where they are and speaks to people in their language. And more and more in Florida, that language is some beautiful version of Spanglish or Portunol, right? Um, it's it's not easy to find people who just live in, in one language, but many languages and a mix of languages. And so how can our churches better meet the needs of people who may speak English, but they are culturally Latino, right? Um, and they may wanna bring friends to church with them who have a different cultural background or speak a different language. Um, and how can we build more diverse churches in the future? My sense is that people live lives, generally speaking, people live lives that have plenty of room for cultural and linguistic differences. We know our in the state of Florida, our kids are in school in spaces where there's lots of room for cultural and linguistic differences. So can our churches make room? for all of that difference, and the beauty that springs forth from it. Thanks, Erwin, for allowing me these opening uh, remarks.
0: Thank you so much, Cynthia, for give us an update on the disaffiliations. I love what you talked about theology, and I would love to talk to you more a little bit about that in a little while. And what does it mean to be Wesleyan, to be inclusive? And so thank you so much for that update. Um, now we're gonna hear from Pastor Edwin Cotto, if you just tuned in, he is a pastor here in our conference, the president of the Southeastern Jurisdiction Hispanic Latino Caucus, y él va a hablar un poquito inglés, un poquito él es he's going to speak a little bit of English, a little bit of Spanish, um, for a lot of reasons, one, it's his native language, but two, queremos que esto, esto sea también un podcast para, para personas latinas, uh, para personas que se más cómodo en el lenguaje latino. So we want this also to be a podcast for people who feel comfortable um, speaking Spanish. So Pastor Edwin, gracias por estar aquí. Pastor, thank you for being here. Give dime tu give, me, give us your perspective.
2: First of all, um, thank you for the opportunity. I am grateful for, uh, to, to share in this dialogue of, of such important relevance in the life of our church. I apologize because my English is not my first language, like others, you know, colleagues that is in in this podcast. Um, I bring an agenda of creating anti-racist awareness in our congregations is an arduous but necessary task. I was born and raised on the island of Puerto Rico in the Caribbean with a mixed culture, Afro-Antillian, Spanish, and indigenous. A mixture of races that enriched enrich us, has motivated us to appreciate racial diversity. However, we have experienced the harsh reality of colonization and the political, social, and religious effects that the people experience. The church is not a stranger to this. A colonization mentality has been perpetrated in our structures. I come from a family that has been part of the beginning of Latino work uh, 40 to 50 years ago in the Northeast of the nation. My uh, brothers in the seventies, began work in the Connecticut and Pennsylvania. We they established uh, uh, some churches. I know about that because I share with them my, my talent in music uh, to working uh, some initiative evangelistic states, and, and this kind of thing. We know the challenges it has been to work in a mindset of charity and not investment. In, it is understood that uh, by 2050, the Latino Hispanic minority will have exponential growth and could decide the future of the nation. It means that we must see ourselves as allies and not as impediment within the church of, uh, to achieve, achieving the mission, mission Day, God's dream that we all be saved and make him the king of all of our lives. Uh, as chair of the SEAJ caucus, we have proposed to establish direct communication with conference to strength, uh, strengthen the Hispanic ministries and seek greater equity in theological education leadership, development, and participation of Hispanic people uh, by contributing by their gifts, talents, and abilities. However, we have observed that there are several challenges to face. First of all, we must strengthen our identity as Methodists, like uh, Cynthia said. Many of the arriving brethren uh, come from other traditions and are reluctant to adapt our doctrine and system of government. Second, how work must be done on a congressional development project uh, where these congregation, congregations can become churches of directed and coordinated support so that can be achieved in a reasonable time. Uh, third, revitalize Hispanic congregations with innovative ideas and conference input in improvements uh, to their facilities. And four, understand that you must work in the transitional process from the first and second generation of Hispanic families to a third generation that only speak English and resist identifying with the Latino culture. Five, a change of mindset of recognizing ethnic values does not divide us, Australian culture, but enriches it. It can be understood as sex uh, it can be understood that not all Hispanic nations are the same, that we can understand each other with the same language, but culturally we're different and that makes the ministry a little more complex and challenging. In my experience, my four, past four years in Miami, even Latin Hispanics are tempted by a majority ethnic group trying to impose itself on others. It is also necessary to educate our congregations to value everyone everyone equally and to prevent one group from imposing itself uh, on the other. We must gather the best possible talent in each local church to reach the thousands of Hispanics who arrive every day to our borders. A church that can celebrate cultural uh, diversity is important to work together with the different agencies in the initiatives with the Spanish and Latino congregations. In the last March assembly, I sought a very compromised leadership and a good spirit to be part of the growth and strength of the Latino churches. The delegates asked for justice, inclusion, and more resources to do the mission.
0: This is my uh, words. And if you have a question, I can handle it. Pastor, te iba a me I asked our brother if he could write those four steps. Six. That he six, <laughs> six steps, I'm sorry. Okay. 6 I'm sorry, six. Yes. O- on, on the chat so that we can take a second look at them. But very good. I, I really enjoyed what you said, and especially this point on the exponential growth of Latino people in the United States and the fact that we have the potential to make a significant impact on what happens in our nation. But the question then becomes, how can we have a significant impact in the church if the numbers are low? So I love what you you brought up. I love your steps. Very practical. Um, We're going to transition now to uh, Pastor Esther, Reverend Esther Rodriguez. Um, She is a director of equity and community justice for HOPE partnership and i really love what she's going to bring to the table because she works in the nonprofit field and has experience working in local settings local church settings as well so pastor esther thank you for being here with us today and we'd love to hear your perspective
3: yeah thanks for having me um definitely grateful to be in this conversation one that's not new right one that has as reverend uh, edwin shared has been going on in many ways in many seasons and many times. Um, And so I I do wanna kind of put that in context um, as someone who works around equity and um, looks at systems, context is very important. um, Meaning the circumstances that form the setting of this event that's happening. Um, And so this conversation is important in this time. I would like to say that it must not escape us that our context is not only, as the title of this podcast states, uh, the age of disaffiliations, that's an important contextual piece of this conversation, but that as we speak, there's also a trial underway against the first Hispanic woman bishop in the United Methodist Church, um, which happened in 2004, the first female uh, Hispanic bishop. Uh, when I was uh, graduating high school, so technically an adult, I guess. Um, I grew up in the Hispanic Methodist Church, um, and since seven-year-old Estercita started attending a Methodist church, so almost 37-year-old Reverend Esther as an ordained person in the church, I've seen uh, lots of initiatives for Hispanics come and go. Uh, In my 15 years in full-time ministry, I've participated in many Initiatives and have shed more than enough tears as they have also come and gone. Um, I was looking back at a presentation that uh, Pastor Jose and uh, Reverend Rainer Hernandez and I made just in 2019 in front of the conference, and uh, some of the words of our introduction stuck sh- struck me. Um, we uttered these words not too long ago. At this point in history, we approach this conversation with great anticipation and hope, and also paradoxically with weariness and a great sense of urgency. As I read those words, I realized that I, my weariness had grown and my hope continues ever stubbornly and also scarred um, in this season. Um, We talk about this sense of urgency Um, Not just to reach these persons to whom we want to offer a liberating gospel message, which should be urgency enough for the church, should it not, um, whoever they may be, but also the sense of urgency uh, as a reality of the long-term consequences of prejudiced systemic structures that have brought us to where we are um, and a denominational history of racism um, that we have yet to address and heal. Um, And I am grateful that part of this is continuing to address and heal. And uh, I'm definitely grateful, like as I said, to be part of um, the long haul that is required for addressing and healing. And so in an age of disaffiliation, um, we have many uh, more places to go to continue to address a denominational history of racism or a denominational history of supremacy culture, or as it's called, um, sometimes dominant culture. Uh, the culture, the way that we do things, our values, um, our binaries, the us versus them, the black and white, the superior versus inferior, the civilized versus uncivilized, the right way to worship, the wrong way to worship. Um, the age of disaffiliation, um, for me, in many ways, in that weirdness spaces often seems to be an age where um, great inequity is finally right addressed um, as we speak of our LGBT Uh, siblings. Um, We long for uh, liberation and full inclusion. um, And uh, like other movements of a similar kind in Methodism, the change uh, for some of us, the fear of this change is also that it remains superficial and never really a rooted change, as has been the case oftentimes for other oppressed groups, um, kind of sometimes perpetuating that oppression Olympics dynamic of um, who gets the microphone this go round? Is it the African American Black uh, bodies or is it the Latinx bodies or is it the LGBTQ bodies? Um, And so I long for a gospel that truly liberates and that's intersectional, um, that sees uh, gender and race and ethnicity as gifts. um, And that is indeed part of some of the things that we say in our theology and I long to see it lived out. Um, Methodist Latino ministries have existed in Florida specifically, which is the context for many of us since the late 19th century, um, from 1873, when a congregation was formed in Key West until the present time. Uh, This is not uh, something that is brand new. And so I kind of formed this context to remind us of our history as it does inform where we are and where we are headed. Um, I long to continue to hear about those numbers, which I think are jarring as Reverend Cynthia said, um, the numbers that she mentioned five doesn't seem like a lot. And yes, in context, it is a lot because we don't have a lot of Latinx ministries. We don't have a lot of ordained uh, clergy persons that are Latino, Latina, Latinx. And so um, when you're starting with a a minority uh, group, and we see them also still kind of on the, uh, the outskirts of conversations and of the culture of a group, um, then it definitely impacts things differently. Um, and so in this conversation, I kind of keep looking at it as the larger narrative of liberation of scripture, um, the one that transforms. Um, so these things are not surprising. Uh, we, we have seen and read and experienced that the desert takes longer to cross than we originally thought, right? Um, that many, if not all, <laughs> or most fall along the way as we're seeking the promised land and that when we do arrive at the promised land, which doesn't look like what we thought it was going to look like, we find ourselves a different people than when we started. And so for me, that is the kind of Liberation and hopeful narrative as we continue to traverse uh, the desert uh, together, um, and hold all of that in context uh, for us. So, thanks for letting me share.
0: Thank you so much for sharing, Pastor. Um, thank you so much for your perspective, and you know, I I just can't wait for us to engage in the conversation. And I especially want to hear about some of the work that you want you're doing in the nonprofit community as well. Um, But thank you so much, Esther. Um, Now we're going to hear from Pastor Jose. Pastor Jose is serving here in the Central Florida area, and he is an elder in our conference. And so, Pastor, the floor is yours. Share your perspective with us. Um, I'm going to echo some of the words that Esther shared. I think Esther
4: and I find ourselves doing that often. (laughs) But out of this book, each in uh, your own tongue or our own tongue. Uh, was written by Juso Gonzalez. It always caught my attention. Uh, it says this, in, Flo- in the Florida Annual Conference Session in 1873, so it's for perspective that is 150 years ago, Dr. Charles A. Fullwood was appointed to Stone Church with instructions to serve the Cuban population. And a young minister who had been admitted on trial, Jose Panduser was appointed to be his associate, a missionary to the Cuban population. I think that sentence uh, says a lot of who we are from the very beginning. Our, our circumstances. The appointment was given to the doctor, right, of the of the church, the appointed pastor of the church, and they added uh, a person that was going to be helping, right? Jose was going to be helping uh, with it. Sadly, Jose died, uh, and they could, but they continued the ministry after that. But that is 150 years. I mean, uh, 150 years of Latino ministry in, in the state of Florida. And the reality is in, in 2018, in the same presentation that uh, Esther made a reference to, we found out that there were 2,492 people who were in 37 churches, ministries, or ministries within another church. Um, that is about 40 people per ministry, if the numbers hold to today given the amount of churches, that means that we have less than 800 people who are attending churches, right? If there's 12 ministries and, and the average is the same, that means that we have 800 people. As a point of reference, right? 26.5% uh, of the population of Florida is Latinx. That is 4- 5.7 million people in the state of Florida. Uh, we were in a horrendous, difficult, painful situation in 2018, and, I mean, today is beyond beyond a crisis, right, and uh, it is difficult, right, I feel like, um, I, I would say, especially in 20, 2018, <clears throat> in 2019, when we did the presentation, I felt like we opened our heart and show our wounds, many of them who were, I can't say scarred, because they were still bleeding in many ways, and it felt like, we weren't able to make decisions that helped us to, to be able to move the ministry forward despite those efforts. So it, it is very much with weariness, right, that we approach the conversation, but it is a necessary one. Uh, I, I believe uh, in echo uh, Reverend Winsworth that sadly, many of these ministries that we had uh, were not uh, connected to, to the theology. Uh, the West oh for western theology and the theology of the United Methodist Church so I as a United Methodist pastor uh feel that uh when I growing up in Puerto Rico I always felt that I needed a, a theological home that the that the Pentecostal church that I grew up in although I loved it and cared, wasn't my theological home and the day that I was able to understand uh the grace gospel of the United Methodist Church, I was immediately found, like I have finally found a home. And I know that that is going to be true, and it is true, for hundreds of thousands not millions of Latinos uh, in the state of Florida and throughout the United States. But we simply have not been able to find out what that reaction will be like. And instead, you know, I have heard uh, non-Latino pastors say things like, well maybe just Latinos are not meant to be Methodists or Latinos simply don't belong in our churches, which to me is is a, a perpetual ni, de aquí, ni de allá, not from here, not for there or, or living in the hyphen as a as a Latino. like you don't belong anywhere. Even the home that you have chosen to give your whole life in ministry, it seems to be like well you are an exception to the rule. but I believe truly that that especially second generation Latinos, it will make absolute sense the gospel that we're presenting. Uh, with that in mind, I think it's very important for us to keep in mind that of that 5.7 million people that we're talking about in the state of Florida alone, 53% of them were born in Florida. So the perception that we have is that ministries are first generation only, that people just got here, that they're that they only know Spanish. The reality is that that is not the case. I mean, most Latinos, Latinos in the state of Florida specifically, have been able to become bilingual faster, I would say, than any other minority group in the past, right? Uh, I mean, we have minority groups that came in the past, like Italians and Germans, they abandoned their language during World War II, right? There was a sociological pressure that gave them the pressure to be able to abandon their language and and join a greater uh, culture. But that hasn't been the case for us, right? I can be here physically, but in Facebook, I can be with my high school friends. I can be here and I can listen to Bad Bunny. I can be here and and be able to watch uh, The Walking Dead at the same time that I'm just as connected to Puerto Rico as I've always been. So I think it's it's a different reality that we simply, our methods have always been uh, focused on the first generation, tailored to the first generation, and the first generation, I think, theologically, had told us that we don't necessarily connect with what you're preaching, and we have ignored a second, third generation of uh, of Latinos in Latinas and Latinx in the state of Florida. Um, another, some of the things that we have that I think are important to us: two uh, percent in, in 2014, the Pew Research did a research uh, overall. Uh, religious behavior in the United States, but the, specifically in the United Methodist Church, in their survey, uh, only 2% of all United Methodists are Latinos or Latinx. So two, 2%, right? Like 94% of all uh, United Methodists identify themselves as white in 2014. So to me, um, one is the State of Florida should be a leader in ministry to Latinx. Like when you look at our numbers and you look very hard, it, we should be the leaders. We should be teaching all the people in our jurisdiction and the rest of the denomination how to reach Latinx. Uh, and, and that is not true, 150 years, and that is not true. Um, and we, I am very uh, afraid that in a denomination that was 95, 94% uh, self-reported as white that we have the illusion that we are becoming diverse, that because we're disaffiliating and we're taking a step into inclusion um, and into being welcoming, that somehow that means that we are more diverse when the reality is the opposite. We, the reality is, I I, I mean, this is my perspective and how I see uh, this reality is that because we have little, we, we have a number of ministries that were, that didn't have, uh GCFA numbers and or didn't have we weren't were parts of other churches or they were not necessarily within the spectrum of our reporting system. Uh then that meant that we don't know how many left. We don't know how many ministries are no longer uh with us and it's unclear to us to be able to pinpoint. Um so it feels like we're stepping into um into a more diverse reality. But the reality <coughs> is that in the moment, the reality is that uh, we have a number of minority groups that have left the denomination in this affiliation. And we have become even more homogeneous, which it doesn't, I mean, it is an opportunity that we have ahead of us, right? It is a beautiful opportunity. Obviously, that's why I'm here, right? I believe that we have a, a beautiful opportunity in front of us, but it is an imperfect opportunity. It is, we, there are strategic and uh, urgent things that we have to take place in order for us to capitalize in this opportunity, because it's very much an imperfect opportunity. I'm really concerned with uh, who's who's gonna be left to mentor, to lead, to imagine, to understand the communities that we're in. Um, I mean, it's unclear to us how many, how many clergy do we have how many leaders do we have that are committed to imagine a new future and are still willing right to open their heart and be able to show uh, their bleeding hearts um, because the reality again you don't you don't get and I'll close with this the reality is you don't go through 150 years and stay at a 2% by accident right there are there are systematic reality institutional realities that have made that be the case, and they have been really good at making that the case, and have sustained. And they're not going to go away simply because we have disaffiliated. We still have those structures, and I mean, I, I know that most of the uh, Latin expats that are here can give you stories. Uh, even even I'm bilingual. Um, I I went to seminary. I have gone through the whole process, and I have faced racism strain the eye within the church on multiple occasions and I know that is uh, true for all of my Latinx uh, fellow pastors and leaders within their churches so if something has to happen right this is this is is this is an opportunity this is a syst- systemic change in the denomination then this is an opportunity right crisis is also an opportunity change is also an opportunity for us to be able to uh, to make changes that will really help us to think of a brand new future. So
0: I'll conclude with that. That's great, Pastor Jose. Thank you for sharing all that. I have so many thoughts, I have so many ideas of things that we can implement in our conference to be a little more diverse. Cynthia, you wanna share something?
1: Well, I really appreciate Jose's closing words and I wanted to share just a story and I thought maybe it would, it would, it it speaks to that. We had an anti-racism training event for a day in the Southeast district back in the first weekend of March. And um, of course, to do this training event in this season of churches disaffiliating, et cetera, you kind of know people in the room or people who are staying, right? And so it's kind of a, this day long event that's that's about something very specific something that for many of us this is very important work in our church now and as i was in the room and i heard some reflections we had some small groups that met. i was a part of a small group and one of the women said she was a new member at one of our churches and you know just a couple years and so she came to this event and she was in tears and she said you know she had an experience like many on this call would have had like growing up in an immigrant community having very mixed feelings about um, her speaking Spanish at home and learning English at school and and worth and value. And and she said, I never thought I could talk about these things in church. And, you know, I realized during that day that I do believe a mark of, of the future United Methodist Church is people who are willing and ready to do hard things together. I do think some of what is prompting people to leave the church right now is this is getting really hard. All this stuff is really hard and that's not what we come to church for. And I do believe what Jose said about, we have this opportunity to sort of reframe. So what is going to be important to us? And it is harder to involve more people who are different. It is, it's just harder, right? And part of the reason why we kind of have had systems that are very cookie cutter in respect is because that's it's kind of easier to plant a church just like all the other churches were planted right and to plant churches in places where, um, where we've always had success. And so for us to say we're, we're, we're going to engage in work that is harder work, bringing people together who are people who, who have different backgrounds. Um figuring out what that looks like, um, the theological grounding of why that's important, and then, you know, being willing to kind of stick with it, even as it is hard, that I do think those remaining in the United Methodist Church in part are people who are saying, we can do that. Like we do expect hard things from church. If you look in the Bible, like Christians did hard things. You know, religious people did hard things together. Um, so I, I appreciate that, Jose. And I do think there's an opportunity for us as leaders to say that is a church we're anticipating and that we're we're signing up for that. Um, and we'll and we'll do that work.
0: You know, great thoughts, Cynthia. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jose. Thank you, Esther. Thank you, Pastor Edwin. We're gonna go ahead and start with a question that we have from Stephen Hoffman here, and then we'll engage in in some more conversation. If you have a question, please feel free to raise your hand or put it in the chat. I'm going to start with Stephen's question. It says, what is your perspective on the Wesleyan relationship between personal and social holiness? From an Anglo perspective, the resistance to the social principles seems to be that they are too political, thus divisive. What would it look like to be authentically Wesleyan today? Thank you for expressing your weariness and expressing that today is beyond a crisis. How does this contrast with the desire of many to just get back to normal? So I don't know if anybody on the panel wants to begin with that question
4: well I mean I can tackle the the second part of it right like um I mean I don't I don't I mean I would say definitely normal n- never worked for Latinx right this is a podcast from the from Latinx perspective. it didn't really work for Latinx perspective i mean like nor normal right twenty eighteen twenty seventeen uh was already in dire situation uh so um it's not like we can good at the good old times to be able to to um to be able to create a map for us to be looking forward um i mean i think there there is um, there is going to be difficulties, right? Like there, there is a number of churches in our conference who are going to want to be like, hey, I want to, you know, I want to be back to normal. When is this going to be over? How can I get, how can I move forward? And um, I think that the, at least in my experience in ministry, when you go to, uh, inevitably, right, there is a, a dominant group within our denomination, right? It's like overtly obvious. I think that when you, um, at least in my case, in our church, right? When when we went to, um, when we expressed some of the changes that were taking place, for example, our traditional service used to be at 11 o'clock in the morning, and now it's at 8.30 in the morning because we wanted to make a space for 10 o'clock and for 11.30 for other services. So we have a traditional service at 8.30, um, an English modern service at 10, and a Spanish service at 11.30. So for us to be able, we knew that those are groups that we wanted to be able to reach within the context of our community. But so we inevitably, we asked one group to make the sacrifice to go to 8.30 uh, in order, because you know 58% of our community is Latinx and um, and they're gonna be looking for a different kind of worship expression. So, but I think that when, when they're able to see, uh, well, you know what, I'm making this sacrifice but look at the results of what we're able to do. And I think that's part of the problem that we have, that we have never been able to show those results. We have never given the opportunity to be able to show here's the results. So, I mean, we as a church um, are just beginning to see some of those fruit, right? Like here next month, we're going to be doing baptism. We anticipate about 12 to 14 baptisms for professions of faith, adults who are becoming... Uh, a christian and develop a relationship with church for the first time we're just being able to see that and our hope is that those those groups who are making a sacrifice or changing their structure in order to accommodate for the groups are able to see you know what we wouldn't be able to reach this families and this families wouldn't have a relationship with god if this wasn't taking place i think that my hope will be that that any christian will be able to say yes that is awesome right we know we can realize that we wouldn't be able uh, to do that, so when you put that within the context of the conference as a whole, um, I think that is something to keep to keep in mind, right? Like that, as we we are asking inevitably, right? There's power has to be shifted, right? Power must be shifted in order for other groups to have a voice, right? That that's why this is so difficult. If if it was if we could just create more power, then I mean inevitably resources and decisions have to be made in order to. Be able to give voices to groups that didn't have a voice before. So that is, but if we can if we're able to show the results of what we're doing, if we're given an opportunity, we're able to show results, my hope will be that they that a Christian will say, you know, people are coming to the Lord that didn't know about it before and able to to grow that that so that is a great opportunity uh, for us. And I would say the opposite of that is is ceasing to exist. Right? like the if we are not reaching uh i mean no uh, latinx are 26 percent of uh, the florida population at this time but the dissipation is that 80 percent of the growth in the next 20 years is going to be latinx so if i if said is a, a conference we are not able to reach latinx and be able to disciple them on multiple generations in different levels then i mean we're, we're not gonna be around as a denomination, as a vital denomination for years to come. And I would say even more, if we're not willing to do that, maybe we shouldn't be, right? Like we have to be able, I mean, just like as a pastor, I look at my community and I need to respond to the realities of my community as a conference. We need to respond to the reality of our state.
0: Thank you so much for that. Does anybody else want to tackle this question a little bit? Anybody else want to share? Go ahead, Pastor. Pastor Edward. Necesito es tu traducción para poder hablar con libertad. <laughs> dale, dale, dame pausas. Dame pausas. Okay. Okay, dale, dale. <laughs> linea I'm going to trans- de... translate for him. He's going to share a little bit in Spanish okay. and then I'm going to translate for him. Okay. En línea
2: de pensamiento con el Pastor Jose. Eh, me parece que, apuntando eh, con, con parte de los, de, los, de los pensamientos que trae mi experiencia en este tiempo que he estado trabajando con nuestras iglesias, a eh, ellos le preocupa mucho las prioridades que presenta la iglesia anglo-blanca y la iglesia latina. Por ejemplo, cuando hablamos de la tradición wesleyana hablamos de ser una iglesia holy una iglesia de santidad.
0: Ok. So the Pastor Edwin is saying that he agrees a lot with what Pastor Jose has said. He's in line with what he's saying, specifically on um, what it means to be Wesleyan. So he's now going to share a little bit about what what is a Wesleyan perspective.
2: Okay. Sobre todo, los eh, metodistas de primera generación expresan de que la iglesia americana, Anglo, se ha despegado bastante de esos principios que ellos aprendieron Eh, cuando vinieron al señor muchos años
0: atrás. So, a lot of the Anglo churches feel as though we've actually moved away from the Wesleyan tradition. Um,
2: eh, por ejemplo, eh, se le da mucha prioridad a la área social y nos hemos convertido mayormente en una prioridad de una agencia social eh, de dar pan, eh, de dar eh, Eh, alimento a los necesitados, eh, eh, ropa, y nos preguntan mucho sobre esa participación de la iglesia. Eh, Pero por otro lado, poco se prioriza en cuántas personas piden a Cristo, cuántas personas están transformadas, y hay una diferencia de de lenguaje entre la iglesia hispana y la iglesia anglo por cuestión de prioridades. So he's sharing that one of
0: the... perspectives is that we've become more of a social agency where we give people clothes we give people bread and that we've neglected the more personal holiness perspective uh coming to know christ for the first time um and so that's one of the perspectives of some anglo churches some some people in terms of how we've moved away from what it means to be Wesleyan. And then he's also now beginning to talk about the language barrier. There's a language barrier.
2: Pero es importante hacer las dos cosas. No estamos diciendo que una cosa debe de quitar la otra. Son importantes los dos aspectos. Pero cuando miramos las estadísticas y los números de nuestras iglesias, pasan muchos años que iglesias no muestran que nadie haya venido al Señor. O sea, no hay conversión. Y, y de forma de que la iglesia pueda crecer si no se llama a la gente a conocer al, al Señor, ¿no?
0: And so, there's, he says, what's important is for us to keep both the personal and the social holiness aspect together. And at the same time, there's a critique that, but there's a, not a lot of professions of faith. And he says, if there's not a lot of professions of faith, how is a church going to grow? Así es,
2: en espíritu que muestran nuestras iglesias hispanas, van en direcciones opuestas. Y tenemos que ver cómo podemos conciliar esto. Eh, los números dicen, a nivel de toda la nación, las iglesias que mayormente están creciendo son las iglesias hispanas. El problema es que no necesariamente tienen identidad metodista. Así que por eso es que nos preocupa a nosotros que... Eh, que si van creciendo también tengamos recursos teológicamente preparados y que puedan atender nuestra doctrina como metodistas porque el peligro es que una vez crecen eh, tienden a desligarse tienden a separarse y
0: dejan de ser iglesias metodistas So one of the things that he's seeing is that the churches that are growing are Hispanic. There's a lot of Hispanic churches that are growing, but they're not necessarily Wesleyan, they don't have that Wesleyan tradition of holding both the personal, personal and the holiness intact. And so he encourages for theological courses or some programs so that we can be Wesleyan in, in this balanced way. See, ¿Sí? that's part of my position. No, me, encanta, me, I love it. I love what you Amy. We have a question from Amy, and she said. I would love to hear more about serving and empowering second and third generation Latinos. I'm a second generation Cuban who struggles with conversational Spanish. In the current church I'm serving, many of our young adults are in mixed relationships or marriages. What does the future look like in these demographics?
3: Um, I wanted to... Before we get to Amy, respond a little bit to the other question. I just yes, some yes. thoughts that I wanted to share. Um, what I hear Reverend Eileen sharing does align also a lot with the question that Reverend Steven had around the perspective on the wrestling relationship between personal social holiness. And they were coming from two different perspectives. Um, so I'm making an assumption, right? That And that um, Reverend Stephen is coming from an Anglo perspective. Um, between that relationship and oftentimes um, the resistance. Oh, he says, from an Anglo perspective, I did read that. Um, The resistance to the social principle seems to be that they are too political and and thus divisive. Um, And what I hear Reverend uh, Edwin also saying from the Hispanic perspective, that is also kind of a point um, where um, often a lot of Hispanic churches are like, yo, where is the social holiness Uh, or where's the personal holiness? You're all about social holiness. And so for me, it's interesting, right? That both are actually kind of more traditional streams even though their cultures are different. And so we're speaking more here than uh, language barriers or where you came from barriers. There is very much a a theological question here. Um, And from my understanding of Wesleyanism, you cannot divide personal holiness from social holiness, right? Um, there, we are the both and people. We are the people who hold things in tension. Meaning, our understanding of the gospel has never been easy. It's always supposed to have been hard. Uh, the gospel has always been um, one that leads to a cross, like not to um, the highest places in the palace, right? And so, I think what we're getting to the crux is: what does it look like to live the true? gospel of again, liberation, uh, the true gospel of, uh, which liberates us in all aspects of our lives from the personal to the social places. It's a holistic gospel, it's a salvation, meaning wholeness, right? Um, And so when I think of, when folks say it's too political, too divisive, um, again, to me, it's a, a deeper understanding of what does it mean to live out the gospel? What were the teachings in Old and New Testament? How have they not been always political in the sense? What does it mean to be political? Um, I know in the nonprofit um, sphere, we also get uh, kind of the tension and the in trouble with like policies, what are the words of policies and like being too political. And what we often say is that policies equal people. Like when we talk about uh, creating policies and laws, we're not doing it for the sake of uh, talking about um, politics and Uh, Democrats, Republicans, or whomever—we're saying how these impact people's lives. And if we say that the gospel about is about the impact of lives and souls, um, and the wholeness of a person, then we have to look at the things that impact the life of people. Um, And so, to me, it's about teaching what. What are we talking about when it means gospel? Uh, What does it mean? Uh, How do we not offer cheap grace, right? Like Bonhoeffer would talk about, but rather that discipleship has always been costly. We just have done a disservice to the church and told them that the gospel equals comfort when it never really has, right? Um, And so I think that transcends cultures in many ways. So I found that very interesting that we were coming from different cultural places and yet we were talking about the same theological questions. Um, So just wanted to address that real
4: quick. Well, I would say that doesn't happen by accident, right? Like there is a... A pseudo perspective, but I would say um to to that question like it, because this if I think that the question is kind of connecting our our uh our social holiness versus our personal holiness with what does it mean to be, with why are we not authentically Wesleyan um I think those two are not connected directly in the sense that I think we're not authentically Wesleyan because we didn't have a vision for Latinx ministry in our conference, or so we didn't have an intent. We our Latinx ministry grew accidentally in many ways, or by shifting powers from one to another, and say, "Well, I'm going to bring this person and that person." So it wasn't like somebody stood and said "We're looking for this yes. kind of people. We have a plan and a strategy for our Your conference plan. to be able to reach, mm-hmm. and this is how we're going to do it." So because there was no a strategic plan, then. It was like, well, Joe kind of like is a Latino and or Latinx, like maybe he or she should be the leader. And all of a sudden, right, they found themselves that oh, well, then we should look for funding and maybe right. It wasn't a, it was just accidental, all over the place, over and over and over and over again. So there was no overarching vision of what are we doing, what are we trying to accomplish, how we keep ourselves. This is our values, right? I mean, the reality is that. We should have the higher standard of all uh, clergy, right? Because we're offering the most resources to many of these clergies. Um, I mean, I, I was I grew up in a I know what it is to do ministry with two sticks and you know, and a TV mounted on top of a card, or in and try to do the best I can to keep attentions of fifteen year olds. Um, but so, I think we should be able to step back and be able to say this is who we're looking for. And I would say also put more resources and fewer opportunities, and look for higher quality leaders who are going to be committed in, uh, uh, to the Wesleyan theology. Um, but to me, the most exciting question is Amy's question, right? Because I really think that that's where <laughs> that's where the the future of our ministry is. Right? I I think. I mean, for me, uh, the way that we have responded to that in our church is, uh, I mean, we have three services, right? We have a traditional service, an English speaking service and uh, a Spanish speaking service. But the English speaking service and the Spanish speaking service are identical other than the fact that they're different in language. And we don't call it the Latino service. And I, 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 I would say it here one time and I would never say it again. I certainly don't call any of my services American like uh, that, that is, uh, I, I don't even know what to say to that. <laughs> like, uh, I, I, I think it's an awful, I, uh, our worship should not be on the basis of ethnic, or ethnic group. It's on the basis of language and culture, right? A culture has a specific perspective on worship. So therefore, uh, that culture can be shared and enjoyed often with other groups and other generations. So to me, uh, we tell our church, our whole church, we say we're going to be one church in fellowship, in service, and in discipleship. So our discipleship structures, our service structures to the community in general, like the service projects that we do, the outreach programs that we do. And when we hang out, we find ways to hang out together. Uh, all, all, the, all the services hang out together in, in different ways. So we're going to be one church. We're going to be different when it comes to actual the worship experience, right? Because uh, we're going to be, uh, because there's a culture that is involved in it. So for us, I mean, our services take into consideration the second and the third uh, generation Latinos. I mean, for me, any Latino, Latinx church that is not, uh, that does not include English is a dying Latinx church, right? If you're, because you're, te- you're telling uh, amazing leaders like Amy or like, uh, I'm, I'm biased about this, or my kids. And you're telling them you don't belong here. You gotta. When you grow up, you're gonna have to find another place because we are only, uh, we are only in English. Uh, So that has to be. And to me, I I would say, on, I see a future for the church that is multicultural, right? I think we're all heading there. I think Revelation makes it clear. I saw a crowd of many nations in many languages, right, Uh, worshiping God. So that's where we're heading. And I, I think that second, third generation Latinx are gonna be more open to that reality. So to me, that has to be a, a, a context. My kids grew up in a way, in a place where if they are, if if their reality is homogeneous, they're gonna have a, an immediate distrust of the environment that they're in. If they, it, to me, that also means for our churches, you have to be able to see yourself on the stage. So whoever's singing, preaching, teaching, that they have to be on the stage. So we got to create spaces for second, third generation, Latin to have a voice on the stage. Uh, and and we, we strive for that, right? Our, uh, our uh, staff is uh, very diverse and our stage, our worship team, and the way that we teach, we make sure that it reflects multiple generations because we want people to be able to see themselves on the stage and for it, for them to say, okay, this is a place where I actually belong and there's a, sp- a place for me. Um, so you have to be intentional. And it is, I mean, the, the most segregated hour of the week is 11 o'clock on Sunday by right? late. And again, that didn't happen by accident. There are structures in place that have maintained that. So you have to go against that grind in order to be intentionally or purposefully create environments where they're not only gonna be welcome, but they're they're gonna be able to lead, they're gonna be able to have a clear and distinct
0: voice. Does that answer your question, Amy? Thank you, Pastor Jose. I wanna answer Amy's question real quick, just from my perspective, if I can. And just keep it short, because I'm not the speaker today. But here's what I would say, I would say read, read as much as you can about the experience of the Latino people in terms of racial development, assimilation, deconstruction of culture as they enter the United States. I was reading a sociology sociologist just recently who breaks down each race and what the deconstruction process looks like for them. And the last process, according to him, in Latino people is language, identity. So they so when you come to the United States as a Latino person, there's a strong possibility that you will lose. The Spanish, you will no longer speak Spanish. And so knowing that, I would say, read and then learn Spanish. Teach it to your children. Teach it to your children's children. And like Cynthia said, we do the hard things. And learning Spanish is hard. Speaking Spanish is hard. Learn Spanish. Teach it to your children. Read about the deconstruction of the culture. And if any all else fails, hire a translator to be with you when at all times or when you're with somebody, right? When you're with somebody who you're engaging with the conversation. But that's from my perspective, maybe a controversial one for non-Spanish speakers, but learn Spanish. Cynthia, you want to share a something?
1: Well, I I think language and our ability to shift the
0: We can't hear you, Cynthia. We can't hear you. Yes? I, I can. Better. Can you hear me? Oh, you can hear her?
1: Okay. Yeah yeah. Okay. Oh, I can't hear Great. you. Great. Um I think I think the point about language and our ability to shift as a nation the expectation that that there is one language and it's English and shift that to a more normative understanding of people being bilingual. So I think that um uh a frustration I had early in ministry when I was serving a an English speaking congregation and a mostly a community of mostly mexican-american immigrants was the young people in the community were ashamed by that their parents only spoke english many of you know this experience their parents only spoke spanish they learned english in school they were often the translator so for them it was a bit of a mark of shame that, that they were bilingual and it was this there was this tension around the spanish and the english if you drove 20 minutes south in that community to the suburbs right being bilingual, right? It, if if an if an if a, a child from this country learns ten words in Spanish, right? They're 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 applauded, right? You know, just a little bit of Spanish, so that's a mark of of pride. But you go across town, and you've got young people who don't feel proud of being bilingual. And so, how do we shift that dynamic? Um, this happens often in in our churches where. A pastor might be bilingual, you know, it's talking on the phone in Spanish, people feel threatened by that, we don't understand. So instead of asking, instead of saying, you know, I'm the one that only speaks one language, like look, here's this person in my life who's a leader now in my church who speaks two languages, it's actually threat, right? That there's a fear in that. So how do we shift and make it more normative that people will learn are, are the joy or the pride in being bilingual? And and so I think because I think you're absolutely right, Erwin, Learning and I really appreciated what you shared about getting into the experience of people coming to this country as immigrants, and then how and part of part of what they're experiencing it comes from this majority culture around what's normative, what's important, what are we going to lift up, um, and and how do, how do how can our churches be a better model for that, um, and and not. Perpetuating the shame, or this is what this is what everybody looks like and sounds like, or yes. really lifting up the joy in in the differences among us.
4: I mean, like, I would say uh, again, this is my opinion, right? That I'm bilingual, right? I, I I speak English and speak Spanish fluently, um, and often both at the same time um my kids uh my wife is from missouri my kids are Missouricans. they might be the only three Missouricans on the face of the earth uh, my older son speaks spanish fairly fluent my middle child speaks a little bit less and my younger child barely speaks any of it right like um i i personally see that the church we're here to evangelize to reach in whichever way they are wherever we find them I don't see the church as, a, and again, this might be controversial, but I don't see the church as a entity designed to, to preserve culture, right? I don't see, in my agenda, right, although I'm not trying to destroy culture, and I want to be able to speak within the context of the culture that my neighborhood has as I'm trying to reach it, I don't see, I think that too often we take a ministry and we say that ministry responsibility is to preserve the language, right? Like, so the, so, and, uh, find ourselves where we, things that don't happen in other contexts, uh, of society, we put that weight on the church often because within first generation Latinos, uh, that are monolingual, have a voice within the context of monolingual churches that they wouldn't have in other aspects of society. Right. So they, they, so they look at a youth group, for example, and they say the responsibility of our youth group is not just to teach them the gospel and disciple them, but to, uh, to teach them culturally what it means to be Latinx. I don't, think, uh, I don't think that that's our responsibility. My responsibility is to disciple them, is to, to help them develop a relationship with God. My, I want to be able to reach as many people as I possibly can. Uh, with the gospel of Christ, uh, as an expression of my neighborhood, then I want to be able to speak the language my neighborhood speak, and I want to be able to reach them because that's a reality of my neighborhood. But I don't, I don't see it within the weight of our, of our, our church to be able to have that responsibility. I think, honestly, it belongs in the home. Homes have to make decision as to how they're going to teach the children and how they're going to transfer language and values to the in. And the church will reflect that as it reflects the rest of the community. And I'm I'm just trying to say that often, again, we find uh, monolingual churches that put that pressure within the context of the church. And I think that happens not only in Latinx, but it happens in Korean churches, it happens in Haitian churches, that they look at the agenda of the church and they said, if if you're going to do, you're going to disciple them, you're going to teach them, you're going to baptize, you're going to confirm them. And you also have to teach them what it means to be Latinx. And you got to teach them, uh, I want to reach them for Christ. Wherever they find themselves, wh- however, h- whatever language they use, whatever reality they find themselves in, I want to be able to reach them for Christ. I want to help them become disciples of Christ and grow in their relationship with God. And I will use whatever language, whatever combination, whichever way I need to in order to be able to reach them.
3: Yeah, I think it's it's interesting just even watching us in this conversation where you can see that just because we're Hispanic, Latino, second generation, 1.5 generation, some of us, um, that we also have different perspectives. We aren't a monolith as it shouldn't be um, for any kind of group that's you know, identifies with any ethnicity. So Black churches also aren't a monolith, right? And that's often the expectation that uh churches have to look a certain kind of way if they're this cer- kind of thing. So uh, my immediate reaction would of what does the future look like for these demographics when you ask that um Amy my immediate thought was like whatever the spirit moves you all to for it to look like um we don't have to tell you on this call what it looks like. I mean we could certainly share with you kind of from our experiences and um I think what all of us are talking about is very personal, like personal identities, our own identities as people from Puerto Rico, people from Venezuela, people uh, born in different spaces. And to me that is very scriptural. Scripture is rooted in identity and identity that changes in some ways, uh, whether you, people kept getting different names, why? Because they were transformed. Um, and so their identity grew and shifted um, as their context and spaces shifted. and what rooted them was, in fact, a core identity in belovedness and uh, divinity, right, and uh, made an image of God. Um, There are some things that root folks um, that are values and beliefs that do not change, and they inform different parts of us during different phases of our lives, during different parts of our journeys, as we're living in different contexts and spaces. There are churches that do need to be probably solely Spanish-speaking churches. I think people have survived in this country by being able to go to a solely Spanish-speaking church yes. um, in the midst of sp- certain spaces. And there are churches that might have all Hispanic mm-hmm. people and it's nobody different. speaks Spanish. And the spirit is at work in all of those spaces because there is a deeper identity that is uh, being rooted, That is, they're rooted in. I think when we kind of go back and forth and have these conversations, we're talking about systems and the way is also that um, this larger perspective of, yeah, how do we do Latinx ministries in such diverse contexts? And it is by being that open to what the spirit leads and the transformation of, of those spaces and not being those, again, binary, it must be this or it must be that, right? Um, but rooted in, in, in the mission of belovedness. Um, and so my answer would be, it looks like whatever the spirit moves y'all to be as grounded in, uh, our understanding of grace and belovedness and, uh, what divinity, uh, the divinity that's in each of us. Um, and absolutely there is value and understanding our context, our history. Um, so yes, still read what Irwin said. Huh, absolutely. Those are important. Those inform, of um, why things are the way we are and they might awaken parts of your identity that you weren't, didn't know were there. Um, so I, I I, say both and to, to all the things that were said, basically.
0: Yes, I Yo hope- comparto,
2: comparto la opinión de Esther. Eh, me parece que es importante tener una definición del ministerio que estamos desarrollando. Yo creo que la identidad es parte del plan de salvación que tiene Dios en respetar cada cultura Yo tengo a, a dos minutos tres iglesias metodistas que le sirve a la a la población eh, anglo y lo que nos define a nosotros siendo la única en nuestro sector hispana eh, eh, que recibe una comunidad hispana que quiere adorar y quiere sentirse eh, 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 a gusto eh, de forma de servir a sus con, eh, pueblanos compatriotas en el idioma que aman el idioma que, que usualmente hablan y que han desarrollado su cultura. Así que yo yo coincido con lo que usted está diciendo, pero también reconozco el valor que tienen los ministerios multiculturales, como el que está desarrollando el pastor José allá en Kissimme, que ha tenido un éxito extraordinario, pero es cuestión de visión y llamado. Eh, yo creo que debe de haber un, eh, una afinidad entre lo que la iglesia ha sentido hacer y lo que el pastor que llega entiende que debemos dirigir, ¿verdad?, Eh, pero eh, si vamos a hablar del Ministerio Hispano-Latino, pues entonces eh, debe de referirse a lo que es nuestra cultura hispano-latina. Eh, de lo contrario, tendríamos entonces que llamarle el Ministerio Multicultural o Bilingüe o, o llamarle otra forma, ¿no? Eh, por eso es que hay que ver que hay mucha gente llegando de otros países que no tiene la habilidad y la posibilidad de manejar el idioma inglés Eh, eh, ya son personas adultas que no tienen la forma de aprenderlo y, y necesitan eh, un lugar donde pueda ser un recinto, donde puedan hacer aliviados, fortalecidos acompañados, sostenidos eh, y es una población que va en un todos los días porque vienen niñitos pequeños ¿qué vamos a hacer con el papá y la mamá, el abuelo y la abuela? Eh, eh, o sea que, que es importante también tener esos escenarios eh, eh, muy muy claros en, en, en el trabajo misionero
0: you're going to have to help me, Jose and, and Esther and Edwin, too. Um, But what Pastor Edwin shared was this idea that what's really important is having a vision, having a vision and feeling a call, feeling a call. If you want to make the ministry multicultural, there's space for that. If you want to, in, in his context, it's important that he speaks Spanish because the people who he's ministering to don't speak English. And so... There is space for that as well. And so he really agrees with what Esther is saying that there's space for multicultural ministries, Spanish speaking ministries. Like in his setting, he is the only church where they're doing everything in Spanish, the worship services. The, the um... Did I, mean,
4: I miss again, anything? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I again, obviously we have different perspectives, right. On, on, on this, I, I, I think the bottom line is look at your neighborhood, right? What is your neighborhood that you're in, that God has called you? Like, what are their needs? Who are they? Uh, Who are you trying to to reach within the context of your neighborhood? I mean, our Kissimmee is is always 60% Latino. So, I mean, so we will never see a future where we don't have a Spanish service. But again, for me personally, uh, most second generation uh, uh, youth in within the context of a church, even if they grow up in an environment where it's Spanish only at home, and within the context of worship, they will grow up, and often they're going to use English as their primary language that they're looking for worship. And if we're not willing to engage in a multilingual, multicultural, multigenerational reality, we are saying to that group, "You're not. You're not going to be. We don't have a space for you. You have to learn Spanish to be." in this in this uh to be a part of this community i don't think that that is that for me right we have chosen not to do that to, i mean and we have families in our church that one sunday they go to the spanish service and another sunday they go to the english service and another or sometimes they go to both or they go to one or the other um i think when you have strictly uh a monolingual reality you're looking at the because culture Culture is food, is music, is rhythm, is, it goes beyond solely the, the language. And again, I mean, to think that, um, uh, again, right, 57% of all the Latino, Latinx in our community, in our state are native born, they were born here, right? I would say specifically in the state of Florida, we, uh, my children are going to a school, right? Where 80% of the students are Latinx, and they are developing a perspective of the world that is Latinx, and a Latinx identity that is beyond Puerto Rico, Nicaragua, Venezuela, is the Latinx reality of Kissimmee. But when you talk to them, they listen to Bad Bunny, right, they listen to, uh, they still listen to, we've seen them sometimes, right, but they, and, but, and they eat ajo con gandules and they eat mofongo and, and mango but they use English and as a primary language to be able to communicate. And if the church is not uh, able to respond to that need, then we're telling that group, you're gonna have to have to find another church when at one point in time in your life. So that, that's my personal opinion. And I think, again, we, we need to have a, a, a definition of Latinx ministries that are beyond just Spanish. Right, it has to be uh, a multilingual reality because that's the reality of the people who we're trying to reach. I think the Latinx themselves are are the ones who are deciding that. And we as a church have to be able to respond to their need and respond uh, to who they are, especially second and third generation. Um, so to me, again, I mean, we're seeing it, right? We're seeing it in within the context of our church. Um, but that has to be a part. Spanish is always gonna have a place. And I, I think too, our Spanish service tells the community, you're welcome here, right? Latinx is welcome here. Um, but you, but to me, again, like you have to have uh, an English component, right? Because otherwise uh, um, those children are gonna go to a school in English, they're gonna communicate in English, they're gonna function uh, in English. And again, to me personally, I want to reach them, whichever language they speak. I want to be able to create a space, no matter where they find themselves in. And I don't want them to grow up and say, "I don't have a place, right? I don't have a place here uh, for me anymore." And I think it's it's it is within our reach to be able to do that, right? Like to be able to offer both, not just one, right? Like, but to be able to offer both alternatives. I am. Um, I mean, when we do our in, I think too. Um, with the context of our reality, our Spanish service is absolutely in Spanish. Our music is in Spanish, we speak Spanish, we do it in the English service, it's all in English. Uh, Now it has cultural reference, right, as we preach. Like, if I'm preaching, I bring myself to the sermon at times, right, in, in portion. So there's gonna be a reflection of the Latin culture, no matter which language we're using. But to me, that's an important component. Obviously it's my opinion, but it's an important component for us moving forward.
0: Thank you, Pastor Jose, for your thoughts. Um, we have about nine more minutes. And I and I know I like to end things early because I know everybody's got to go, go on to the next Zoom call or something. But there's so many thoughts, right, that we have. Um, if anybody wants to ask a question, please feel free. I'm trying to think of what would be one last good discussion question. Um, I guess the question would be this for me. Is there hope? for Latinx ministries in the age of disaffiliations? And if so, what does it look like? Is there hope? The numbers are getting smaller. The funding, I'm sure, is decreasing significantly. There's not a lot of us left. Is there hope? And what does it look like?
3: I mean, I would say if we didn't believe in hope, we wouldn't be on a Zoom call on a Wednesday during lunchtime. Um, (laughs) I think we are a people of hope, obviously. Um, Some of us call it stubborn. Some of us call it scarred. It's probably both and, right? Um, I think if our hope in Latinx ministries is dependent on the United Methodist Church or the systems or any of those things, then no, probably that, that hope is misplaced, right? I don't think it should be placed in those spaces ever ultimately um i think there's hymns about hope being built on nothing less than other things right uh i think jesus was the hope was to be built on right um so yes there's always hope um scripture ends in hope uh even in the midst of the hardest time we are people of hope that is our identity speaking of identity that is what we're rooted in and How we define hope is kind of the key, as I mentioned. Um, Not an easy thing, but the hard thing. Um, uh, I have a little, um, I mean, hope matters to me a lot. I work in an organization called Hope Partnership. I have a little sticky here that says there's hope even when your brain tells you there isn't. Um, We could talk for hours on what does it mean to hope. Um, So yes, um, there is hope. I think it will require um, us to lean into, self-reflection, evaluation, all of the good things that are part of growing in grace. Um, It will require stretching. It will require looking at our history, the things we have done and left undone as our liturgy of confession tells us. Um, And it will look like um, hopefully the kingdom of God. Like I told Amy, it will look like what the spirit moves. It will look like Uh, churches where Jose's um, children feel seen and heard and like they belong and that they can be leaders. And it will look like places where my abuela also feels seen and like she belongs and that she contributes to that space. It will look like spaces where um, they are refuge to the world and uh, refuge to uh, certain groups. And it will look like a place where we're called to be more than we would have ever been on our own. And so um, I know that's very ambiguous. Like I don't want it. Uh, I, I hesitate for it to look a particular kind of way, um, but I will name those those dimensions of of bigness. Um, it's bigger. It's it's more expansive. It's inclusive. It's uh, multi ethnic, multilingual, multicultural um, in the way that we uh, grow people. Um, so that's my. Uh, my summary statement uh, as we're winding
2: down
0: here. Appreciate you. I forget you work for the Hope Partnership. Hope is your middle name, (laughs) metaphorically. Cynthia, how about you? You see the numbers. You're you're the system to the bishop. You're in the system. Is there hope and what does it look like?
1: I'm hopeful. I am. I really appreciated Esther's words. I just everyone on the call today has been so thoughtful about reminding us of context I do think that the more we are faithful to our contextual ministries uh, on the ground in our locations with uh, the people God has called us to serve, like that's who we serve, right? The people, the people that are are near and around uh, the places where we have been appointed, and that's going to be different contextually. The more we can be on the ground with those folks, and particularly with young people and people who have who find themselves far from our churches, right? then um that i think we can be faithful to this work and i think there is hope i think there's a real longing in our communities and in the world for um, a spiritual voice that is inclusive a spiritual voice that is that says all are welcome and we're going to help you find a deeper relationship to god here in this place and so i think if we continue um to be very clear about our message then there is a there is a there's a need for it. There's a desire for it. A longing for it um, in our in our community. So I am very hopeful, and I feel specifically related to the the question around the future of of ministries with Latino Latina people in Florida. I think there is great hope. Include even just right here today, people saying we know we're in a time of change. Like we know, just naming naming the fact that we know some things need to change, and we know we need new models. We know we need to include more voices. Um, I think that is the first step um, to really a very hopeful and bright future uh, in our in our conference. Uh, earlier today, um, a question was asked as we were very beginning about how many of our pastors um identify as um, pastors with um with identify as Latino pastors. Um, they may identify in different ways, but um and these are full elders provisional elders or deacons and local pastors and so i was sent a list by the conference office and it's i can count 33 of course it's probably not a perfect list but um that that's a that's a good cross section i think of people and voices in our conference who have been trained theologically we have lots of lay people who would label themselves that way so if you put all of us together um and uh, and folks like me that you all graciously include who have a heart for um or doing this work and I've had some some of my own experience outside of the country but really want to just be a part of the conversation among people who know best and from a personal experience about how we can make a greater impact in our state I think is is really crucial so I do think there's a lot of hope.
0: Thank you Cynthia. Pastor Jose, Pastor Edwin, A Esperanza is your hope?
4: I'm I'm beyond hopeful. I'm I'm excited about the future. As difficult as they may seem, perhaps, but I'm super excited. Um, I think that there's opportunity to have discussions that otherwise that they weren't available before. I think that change is an opportunity for us to explore new ideas that we haven't looked at before, and um, and that. Moments of change in the life of, of organizations and communities are critical moments for us to be able to bring about a renewal and um, and redemptive realities uh, to the process that we find ourselves in. And I I think status quo, right? Nobody which nobody which process that or which strategy you had. The reality is that status quo prior to 2018 did not work well for. Uh, for Latinx ministry. Nobody here in this call, nobody here with any sense could look at the reality of Latinx ministry prior to 2018 and say, we were doing great, right? So it's not like we have um, a, 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 a past that we feel like it was absolutely great before. Now, I think this is an opportunity for us to reinvent Latinx ministry, to look at the future, to try new things, to... Um, to try a, a variety of different ways for us to um, reach our communities. Um, I'm also hopeful. I would say, you know, uh, within the context of, of our church, I see. Um, I see. Uh, uh, we we have gone to serve the community by bringing backpacks. Uh, uh, about a month ago, we went and brought backpacks to uh, uh shelter. Uh, transitional home for single mothers. And we brought about $3,000 worth of backpacks to the children and we got haircuts and we did a lot of work there. Most of the families who were receiving uh, this resources were Latinx, but, uh, and the church was a combination, a beautiful combination of all kinds of people who have their identity and they were serving together. Uh, I do what we do our celebration Sundays once a quarter we do a combined bilingual service where everybody is together. And I, I look at a table of food and there is sweet potato pie and arroz con gandules and there's papusas and there is uh, tortillas. And they're all served in the same table uh, as we are sharing together as one church. And I that makes me hopeful that there is a way for us to be able to uh, to be a church, to move forward, to be effective. And our ability to reach our communities and to respond to the needs. So I'm very, very hopeful.
0: Pastor Edwin, ¿nos cierras aquí? ¿Con una palabra de esperanza? Sí, eh, 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 tendríamos que traducirme.
2: Eh, desde la jurisdicción del sureste, por el Southeastern jurisdiction, eh, hemos eh, delineado eh, unos trabajos para estos próximos meses.
4: We have outlined works for this upcoming month
2: Basado en esperanza. based on hope based on the future of the United Methodist Church Naturally, there is a great
4: expectation of what's going to happen in the general conference Pero una muy but we have a very busy agenda.
2: En relación a fortalecer las 14 conferencias que estamos a cargo.
4: In order to be able to strengthen the 14 conferences that y are. Y estamos
2: that. estableciendo coordinadores por cada conferencia.
4: We are establishing
2: coordinators for each of those conferences. Precisamente para ayudarles en el desarrollo del nuevo ministerio latino para esas conferencias.
4: Precisely to be able to help them to empower uh, new ministries to Latinx community. Así que estamos muy entusiasmados. So we are very excited. Tenemos un equipo de trabajo increíble, muy comprometido. We have a team that is working with us that is very committed.
2: Pastores con gran experiencia y mucha juventud también. Uh, pastors with great experience and a lot of youth. Así que eh, tenemos el deseo de de ver, verdad, qué va a estar sucediendo en los próximos meses,
4: eh, pero so no we have vamos the desire a parar de What is going to happen in the in the upcoming months, and we have a lot of desire to work. Así que sí hay esperanza. Creemos que
2: Dios está en la agenda. So we believe that there is hope, that God is in the agenda. Para construir y ser parte de la nueva Iglesia Metodistoria.
4: To build and to be part of the new United Methodist Church. Eso es lo que pudiera decir. That's what I could say.
0: Gracias, Pastor. Gracias a Cynthia y a José y a Esther por su tiempo. Thank you to, to Cynthia and to each of the pastors here, each of the elders here. And thank you to each of you for coming. Thank you, Amy and Mary and Lori and Pratt and Brittany and Cindy and Stephen, Mary and Spring Church and Lorena. Thank you so much. I pray that you would all engage with your Latinx communities. I pray for some awareness, revelations. I pray y'all speak Spanish, but that's just my perspective. (laughs) But we will follow up with an email. Um, we'll follow up with some resources, whatever y'all need. You can feel free to reach out to me. I'll be happy to buy you that book. We'll be happy to, there's another podcast I recorded titled The Intersectionality of Race and Ethnicity in the Latinx Experience. If you want to learn more about the history of the Latinx word and and, um, the diversity within what it means to be Latino. But thank you all for coming. And this will end today's session.